This is Kincaid and Breckenridge, exclusively on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. I'm Roger. That's Rob. You know, Rob, we do an entire three-hour show about the merging. It's still uh, raging on on Twitter this morning, which is interesting. People have borrowed our Twitter conversation. They've put it on their own Facebook pages, and they're having them on their own Facebook pages now. Yeah, I mean, it's are you obligated to to move over? Let somebody in when when they're merging. That that seems to be uh, where the the debate I, I don't like the falls. word obligated but i would say the que- i think the question is better stated are you a bad human if you don't <laughs> <laughs> well is that hey don't forget as as you heard tony king mentioned in the news there uh premier rachel notley will be providing a wildfire update at 11 o'clock and uh, we got some details there from carrie tate who's covering the situation with the globe and mail uh still some questions uh certainly among them, uh, whether or not there was uh, a gas line explosion in Fort McMurray and how much damage that might have caused. Uh, so we'll go live to that news conference coming up uh, just after 11 o'clock. But of course, I mean, the other big story in, in Calgary today, it's day two uh, of the Matthew DeGroote trial. Yeah. And let's get a little bit of help with this. Uh, we'll bring our guest into the program right now. Lisa Silver joins us, Calgary criminal lawyer, instructor with the uh, U of C Faculty of Law. Uh, Lisa, welcome to the show. Good morning. So uh, normally I would do like a bit of a preamble, but because you're here, uh, I'd rather just ask you just a few questions in lieu of a preamble. We've determined in this case already that Matthew DeGroote committed the murders, right? Yes, that's correct. Okay, so now then it seems the the obligation, at least it seems to me, the obligation on both sides is to determine what his state of mind was as he committed the murders. Yes, it's both the act And as you say, the state of mind, which we would identify as the fault element of a crime. So there's a prohibited act and there's a fault element. Okay, so when we're talking about whether or not someone is can be held criminally responsible for their actions. Now, now this is spelled out in in Section 16 of the criminal code, correct? It, It is, but it's it's actually a little bit more complicated than that. There's actually a whole part in the criminal code called Part 20.1 that's entitled Mental Disorder. And these are as a result of 1992 amendments to the criminal code to set out a regime in cases of mental illness, mental health that may arise as a result of a criminal offense. Okay, because uh, uh, Section 16 reads, no person is criminally responsible for an act committed or an omission made while suffering from a mental disorder that rendered the person incapable of appreciating the nature and quality of the act or, or omission or of knowing that it was wrong. But I guess then is, is the point of, of the rest to understand what that means and how we make that determination. Yes, yes. So Section 16 would set out the defense. The part that I referred to is actually quite a complicated series of sections that set out what the process or the procedure is from the day that the that a person is charged and whether or not they're fit to stand trial, all the way through, as you say, the Section 16 defense, whether or not 
the trier of fact, which could be a judge or could be a judge with a jury, whether or not the trier of fact can find a verdict of not criminally responsible on account of mental disorder. And it's the mental disorder part that leads us to Section 16. So Section 16 does set out this legal test as to whether or not that verdict can be properly rendered by a trier of fact. How is it... This is this is making my head hurt, but this is so. I'm so glad you're here for yeah. this. But but how is it then that if someone can be found not criminally responsible, yes. how how at the same time could that person have been found fit to stand trial? Well, fitness fitness is separate from uh, whether or not that person. And, and Section 16 is all about at the time of the offense was that person suffering from a mental disorder such that they were incapable of appreciating the nature and consequences of the act or incapable of knowing that the act was wrong. So the Section 16 defense is purely on the basis of at the time of the offense. A whole, the whole regime about fitness to stand trial is whether or not that person can instruct counsel, understands what's going on, and a person can be fit or not fit they have to be fit or not fit at the time that they're arrested. It's not connected to the offense itself. Okay. So that's why Section 16 is what's important now. Although when Matthew was first charged, fitness would have been an issue as well. How, how rare is it that, that uh, an accused in this country, and in particular with something as, as uh, violent as this, is found not criminally responsible? Uh, well, it is a special verdict. It is a special defense. It does have to be proved on a balance of probabilities, which is a different standard. Typically, in the criminal law, the prosecutor has to prove the offense beyond a reasonable doubt. And so this defense has to be proved or established on a balance of probabilities. So it's much more difficult to raise. You have to fulfill that test under 16. Uh, which is a very complicated test. It involves questions of law. It involves medical evidence. So in other words, it's not an easy kind of defense to raise. You have to have a basis or a foundation in order to raise it. And there's also, as you can see, even though, and I totally agree, when you read Section 16, it's not the easiest section to understand. But Section 16, subsection 2, actually is a presumption of sanity. So there is actually a legal presumption that people have a normal state of mind. So if you're going to raise an issue that suggests that this person is suffering from a mental disorder, then you've got a, you've got a, a mountain to climb. One of the things about S- Section 16, the, the one that we're talking about here, and I'll just ask you to clarify this for me, is, is it... It seems to to instruct that um, the person could not have known like what they were doing. Well, it's it's actually it's actually a little bit more complicated than that. Under Section 16, there's actually two steps that have to be that that the court and that the trier fact would have to go through. So the first step is all about that mental disorder. And if you look for a definition of mental disorder in the criminal code, it's it's not overly helpful under section two, which is the definition section. It says mental disorder is a disease of the mind. So you go, well, thanks very much. What does that mean? So you have to go to case law 
And case law says disease of the mind, whether or not a certain medical condition or mental condition can be classified as a mental disorder, is actually a question of law, which is a bit of an oddity in some sense because you think automatically, well, isn't it a medical condition? Why is it a question of law? But it is. So a judge has to decide whether or not this mental condition that the accused supposedly has is is actually a disease of the mind before they can even consider whether or not at the time of the offense they then were rendered incapable of appreciating the nature and consequences of the act or knowing that the act was wrong. So that first step, disease of the mind, question of law, court looks at does look at expert evidence, but they're not bound by it. Uh, it's a very broad definition. It's but any illness, disorder, or abnormal condition which impairs the human mind and its functioning. It does exclude, however, self-induced states like intoxication, drugs. It also is supposed to exclude transitory states, you know, like a, a concussion. Right. So... It's very broad, in other words. And there's lots of policy. It's driven by policy. All of this, all of the mental disorder law that we have is driven by the protection of the public and the need to control and accuse through the mental health system. So that's, I mean, that's the purpose, objective. That's what underlines all of these legal findings under Section 16. So once a judge says, oh, yes, this is a disease of the mind, which, by the way, is very broad, quite easy, not easy, but, you know, the, the courts tend to find that first step. Then the second step involves not just the judge, but also would involve the trier of fact, because then they have to decide was this accused suffering from that particular disease of the mind at the time, you know, on a balance of probabilities, that rendered the accused incapable of appreciating the nature and consequences of the act, which actually involves the physical consequences, the impact of that act, or was the accused unable to know that the act was morally wrong? And that narrows, right? That narrows that that legal test under Section 16 because you have to fall within one or two, one or two of those prongs that I set out. Yeah, because and, and that's important because I, I think to the layman, anybody who commits a murder in the first place, for example, must have something wrong with them. Well, uh, and and you, I mean, <laughs> you, you, we, we could look at a case like Luca Magnata with really disturbing details. Yes. And, and his, his attorneys even tried to make this argument that he was yes, not of, of a fit mind, but yeah. he was convicted. He was found criminally he responsible. And, and just on that, I mean, you know, psychopathy, I mean, when you think of someone who, who is um, a psychopath, right? right? You know, we all have an idea of what that is. And I'm sure in the media, a lot of people said, well, Magnata is a psychopath. And the fact is that under the six Section 16 test, a court might find that psych being a psychopath or a, the, the symptoms of being a psychopath is a disease of the mind. I mean, you can go to the DSM, you know, the, the psychiatric manual and find it there. But what narrows it is whether or not he at the time, as a result of being a psychopath, was incapable of knowing that the act was wrong. And I would suggest that by that finding, the jury said, no, he, he did. He fully appreciated it. 
And so there you go. Goodbye. I mean, there goes that defense for him. But it's a little different in the DeGroote case, and that's because it's based on delusions and a psychosis. Now, obviously, that those delusions have to be at the time. You can't be delusional before and after. It has to be right then and there. And that has to be the finding. And the reason why I say being delusional may put you under the the prong of not of being incapable of knowing the act was wrong is because I mean when when you take the situation of somebody and and there are many case examples by the way uh, one I think of is a Supreme Court of Canada case called Landry where the accused in that case killed somebody on the basis that they were acting on God's order to kill Satan. Okay, and so he killed the victim, believing he was Satan and believing he was doing it on divine orders, even though that accused knew that what he was doing was legally wrong. It's wrong to kill somebody. But in his delusions, he felt he was doing something that he was compelled to do and that it was a a morally correct thing to do. And so that would put him under the Section 16, and the court found, the Supreme Court of Canada found, that the accused would have been um, incapable of knowing that his act was morally wrong. Mm. So that's where I feel like this might be going in this case. Um, Lisa, why is it important for us to have a distinction between not criminally responsible and and simply guilty? Well, first of all, I mean, as, as you pointed out, when you read Section 16, it's all about criminal responsibility so it's a blameworthy act that's what we're doing under the criminal code we're punishing people for acts that we deem as a society to be blameworthy and so if we're going to do that we want it to be on the basis of someone who's knowingly consciously making that choice to act in that way And so we can't say that someone who's suffering from a mental disorder, particularly in this case, a delusion, whether that that we feel that that person should be sanctioned and punished on the same basis as someone who intentionally kills. The other thing is... And knowingly wants to. Right. I I think people equate not criminally responsible to to being found not guilty, as though you essentially walk free. And that's totally wrong. This is a special verdict. It's true it says not guilty, but it's very specific in the criminal code. It's not guilty uh, on the basis, on account of, of not being not criminally responsible on account of a mental disorder. So it's, it's a, all of those words that we just used are all part of that special verdict. So there's a recognition that the accused committed the act, by the way. That's what what the these sections say in the criminal code, it's just that blameworthiness that's not there. And they're still within a system. It's that mental health system. Because remember, the whole purpose of, of this part, 20.1, is to uh, protect the public and to ensure that those accused who need who need help get help through the mental health system so once a person's found not criminally responsible by reason of a mental disorder they then go into the mental health system and there's a whole you look at part 20.1 a whole regime about what happens there's a disposition hearing uh prob- usually before that trial judge 
uh, which is the initial hearing about what do we do with this person. And then it is totally all mental health. It's all about protection of the public. The controlling um, term is that the accused is the accused a significant threat to the safety of the public. So that will be the focus. Right. So it's no longer, it's a different focus. Now yeah. you're into what do we do for this person? How do we help them? How do we protect society? And then once a disposition is decided, and by the way, a, a person who's found not criminally responsible by reason of mental disorder can be discharged absolutely, right. which means that they just go home. I think this is a, a pretty bad case, though, to judge then yeah. the, 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 the NCR uh, designation by, because it, it, in, in a case where we had someone who, who just killed five people uh, and, yeah. was, and was found guilty, then uh, it seems, it seems uh, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but putting this person in prison indefinitely would probably be the, the course of action. But the NCR, uh, yeah. I think, has a lot more bearing in situations where an individual kills one person or uh, violently attacks one person. And then the, this decision basically informs us how to, uh, how to treat this person going forward, whether it's to incarcerate them or put them into the mm-hmm. mental health system so that they can be rehabilitated properly. Yes, and it's and you you use the words the word rehabilitation, which is always important. But to be honest, the the mental health system is all about treatment. Treatment, right? And and it's all about keeping keeping tabs on the person. I mean, I know that that we tend to feel, oh well, you know, they're not in jail, so they're just, you know, it's it's all it's all perfect. But the fact is they go to a secure facility when you're found not criminally responsible. If you're found that you need, that you are a significant threat, which could could very well be what the end result is here after a disposition hearing, then you go into a secure facility. It is a hospital, but it is secure. And then you are under, the focus is totally on on treatment. Uh, in the regular institutions, in the federal institutions, it's not necessarily mental health treatment that is the focus. I mean, a lot of it is rehabilitation, true, but a lot of it is also denunciation. You go to jail and you, 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 you go to jail. And, you know, you may need treatment or you may not, but really the focus is that you're, you're in jail. So what is, what is actually attractive about the not criminally responsible response to a tragedy like this is that this person not only will receive focus treatment, but then will be reviewed on a yearly basis by a, an expert review, review panel. So there's a mental health review panel that each province has that is peopled by experts as in there's lawyers, there's ex-judges, there's doctors. There's lay people. There's people like, like you and I who sit on these review panels to determine, again, focus protection of the public is this person still a significant risk are they making strides so there's there's a thumb on this person for quite a while as opposed to the criminal justice system where someone gets a year in custody they can sit there and do nothing and just sit for a year and then be released and that's that all right lisa we'll leave it there uh it's a difficult issue but some important insight Uh, we appreciate it thanks for joining us here you're welcome. All right, that's uh, Lisa Silver, uh, criminal attorney uh, in Calgary and instructor as well at the University of Calgary's Faculty of Law. Uh, has written a lot about this issue. And, and keep in mind, I mean, this is something that goes back 
really goes back for all intents and purposes to the 1800s. So the notion that, you know, we've concocted this uh, in, in our modern progressive society is, uh, I think, a bit of a myth that's uh, that's out there. Yeah, indeed. Uh, more thoughts on this when we come back. Uh, your text messages possibly as well at uh, 77770. You're listening to Kincaid and Breckenridge. This is News Talk 770. All right. Well, day two has turned away at the Matthew DeGroote trial, and it sounds like it's going to be another emotional day. Uh, in fact, family members uh, will be making statements in court today. And it's it's curious because the, the judge has allowed this. Uh, the judge also says they won't be um, submitted. They won't be taken in as official victim impact statements. But again, keep in mind, there there is no jury in this trial. So it's the judge who's hearing all the evidence. So. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about that because regardless of what the judge decides to call these statements, he's he's going to be hearing them. Uh, nonetheless, that, that's what's happening right now at the courthouse. You know, Rob, there seems to be a, a sentiment, a very public sentiment, and, and I get it, that an NCR uh, determination is getting off scot-free. And uh, you heard our, our guest there, Lisa Silver, explain that in some cases... Uh, somebody who is found not criminally responsible is, is just given uh, a discharge. Um, keep in mind, though, we, we do have five victims of a, of a horrific crime here. And our country doesn't serve up injustice to that degree. So while I can't predict what the outcome of this trial is in terms of what the, uh, the sentencing or, or uh, uh, the treatment that Matthew DeGroote will receive going forward, I think that we're all probably of the same frame of mind that this is cruising towards a not criminally responsible verdict, uh, particularly based on the agreed statement of facts that was read into court yesterday. Uh, but, but, but I will say this, uh, and, and maybe we'll endeavor in the coming days to do this, Rob, that uh, Vincent Lee, for example, who is now a, a man who enjoys freedom, uh, didn't have to undergo a, a, a process, a liberty-infringing process to get himself there. He was basically mandated by the country to undergo medical treatment. And only when he was deemed that he's not a risk to society was he let out. So it's not as though nothing happens to people who are found not criminally responsible. Well, but here's the other thing. In other contexts, I think people fully understand and appreciate the idea of informed consent and having the capacity to to make these decisions and understand what you're doing. Mm-hmm. If a, a a 45-year-old man was accused of having sex with a 10-year-old girl, and his defense was that she consented. Would we for a moment say, oh, okay? Absolutely not. That would be irrelevant because the entire basis of the law is that a 10-year-old girl cannot consent to that, is incapable of making that decision. And everybody agrees and understands that. So this is kind of taking the same kind of premise and applying it elsewhere in the legal system to say that in some cases, people are not able to understand and and comprehend what it is they're doing. They're not able to understand the decision or to give consent, and we cannot hold them responsible for that. It it applies in different ways. And and I mean, the example I gave is a very obvious way of of how it applies in the legal system. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's a principle that, that more broadly applies in, in different ways. It's quite clear, though, that in, in a case like this, um, one of the things that we feel we don't get is revenge. And whether or not you, uh, you believe that the justice system uh, should be built on a pillar of revenge, 
That's entirely up to you. But it doesn't seem like we're going to get revenge uh, for the crimes that uh, that were committed by Matthew DeGroote in this case. All right. Well, let's take a break here for the 1030 News. Um, and we, we do have some open time here, and I know there's a lot of people reacting to this. Maybe we can continue this discussion. We also have something else we wanted to get to. Don't forget, we got Rachel Notley, by the way, coming up at 11 o'clock. We'll take that news conference live. We're back with more right after this. Kincaid and Breckenridge on Newstalk 770. So focusing on, on the, the response from the community, from Albertans, from Canadians, to this uh, situation in Fort McMurray, it's been overwhelming. The Red Cross has raised a record amount of money. Uh, different groups and um, different communities, different evacuation centers, I, I think have been very successful as well in, uh, in, in gathering goods, uh, what they need uh, to, to keep these people housed. Um, you know, certainly for people with babies, I know there was a real need for diapers and formula, uh, even blankets, uh, that kind of stuff. Certainly bottled water was needed in, in some areas in, in the early days. And people stepped up to provide that. I think the problem was, though, people just in looking to do good, maybe uh, overthought things huh. and started looking around their house and saying, well, maybe someone could use this or maybe someone could use that. And well, maybe they mean well, just it's not helping. I wonder if, by the way, some of this is generational because um, uh, I know that my grandmother, while she was still with us, would give of herself from time to time things that were just completely like head scratchers. Well, why would you give me this? Like, what can I do with this? So I just sort of wonder <laughs> if, if, if some of it is generational. But maybe we'll explore this a little bit further with uh, Dr. Robin Cox, who joins us now, a professor and program head of the Disaster and Emergency Management Programs at Royal Roads University. Uh, Dr. Cox, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So, I mean, where, where to begin here? I mean, we don't really want to be criticizing people for uh, their best intentions, but uh, it, it's, is it definitely, I mean, it is, it seems definitely provable that um, not everything is a, is a helpful contribution. Yeah, it is a balance because obviously it's wonderful that people are motivated in that way to give. And obviously we want to encourage that. But what we know from the research and from working in disasters is that often the kinds of donations that people make can themselves become a problem or a second disaster in a way. Um, Just from a logistical perspective, a lot of the goods that are donated, while well-intentioned, are not necessarily the goods uh, that are needed, um, nor are they delivered necessarily uh, and the time that is needed. So, for example, uh, a lot of people have been donating furniture and clothes, and as you said earlier, baby uh, formula and diapers, etc. Some of that stuff might be needed, but a lot of it will sit in and will need to be warehoused, needs to be sorted. Some of it may not be useful at all. Like people can donate um, secondhand things, again, with good intentions, but not necessarily things that people uh, want or can use. And so what happens is we end up with a huge mountain of donations that uh, require staff, personnel, storage space, costs associated with that at a time when the focus of those people and that money needs to really be in other areas. 
Well, yeah, and, and so maybe people underestimate the, the difficulty then in in trying to dispose of or manage these, these unwanted donations or these resources that aren't going to be put to use because maybe people get it in their minds, well, you know, hey, if someone can use this, great. If not, well, then that's that's no big deal. But in order to sort all of this, dispose of the, these items, that, that, that takes up resources and it can be counterproductive then. Uh, it can take up a huge amount of resources and space um, and costs. So, um, you know, uh, and again, I think the other, the other part of it is that uh, what we also know is, is uh, that people's needs will change over time. And, for example, a lot of, obviously, people are still evacuated. A lot of the donations that are being made now cannot be used now. Uh, furniture, people have not been able to go back into their homes if they're still standing and assess what they can keep, what they will need to remove and replace. Uh, people who's, who have lost their homes obviously have no home to bring that material into. While they're evacuated, they can't necessarily use toasters and sofas, etc. The other part is that um, for people who are insured, uh, they may be able to use some or need to use some of that uh, material um, in the short term, but they will be looking, as most of us would, to be replacing those goods um, with their own selections, their own needs and defining um, taste, et cetera. So um, there's a, the, the impulse is to give, and, the, and that often happens very early on in the disaster. And, and uh, disaster response organizations end up with these huge uh, warehouses often filled with goods that may or may not be used or necessary um, that they then have to manage, they may have to transport, they have to disperse, they have to sort, clean, etc. And it's a huge undertaking. Well, yeah, and who does that undertaking fall to? I mean, you said disaster management organizations, but I mean, what, what does that look like? Because in the, in the, in the hours and days that, that followed the immediate appeal, we heard from all sorts of private citizens saying, oh, I've got a trailer, let's fill it up, or I've got so-and-so, let, let's fill it up. But Presumably, they drop it off somewhere, and then it becomes somebody else's burden. Well, exactly right, and and who that is depends on where they drop it off. I mean, there <laughs> will be um, both uh, municipal and provincial uh, organizations directly involved in disaster management. We know of other non-governmental organizations that will also be involved. You know, Salvation Army has a disaster unit, um, Disaster Mennonite Services, the Red Cross, Save the Children. All of these organizations are involved. Who it falls to to store that material depends on where it's delivered and when, et cetera. But almost, um, you know, and, and as I say, it's not that the impulse is wrong. It's really that, um, you know, timing and content is, is not necessarily um, the best use. And, and that's why the messages go out to donate funds wherever possible as opposed to goods at a time like this um, to, you know, registered disaster reliable organizations where they can use those funds in ways and target them to the direct needs of those who are evacuated and eventually returned into the community and rebuilding in that community. Um, And to be able to really support those people um, deciding directly what they need. Um, That's also uh, helpful from a psychological perspective because it enables people to get actively involved in determining and uh, rebuilding their lives in ways that work for them, which is, uh, has its own psychological benefit in terms of dealing with the losses and the, the trauma of the event itself. Do organizations, though, does it, would it help if they were very specific 
and when, when making an appeal to the public to be very specific about here's what we need as uh, uh, yes. is that part of the problem? <laughs> Well, it, it it is to a degree. Most organizations will do that. I mean, the Red Cross is very clear um, about, you know, donate money, not goods. Um, some people will, uh, and, and so organizations will do that. But in part, um, people are not necessarily responding to specific organizational requests when they donate, you know, when they get trailers of goods. They're They're responding to their own wonderful desire to help and to mobilize and to and to take some action concrete action to help people that they are um feeling you know empathy with and and wanting to help um so organizations will be specific about needs but some of the, many of those needs will evolve over time so in the immediate aftermath of people evacuating there are some specific obviously needs in terms of shelter uh food clothing um the official or formal disaster management uh, response will normally take care of most of that um, in terms of addressing it. They, and they may ask for specific things, but they're often not. They're often already mobilizing, uh, knowing co- the kinds of things that are needed in that short term. In the longer term, during the evacuation, and then you know when ultimately people return to communities, those same organizations will be very specific about what they need. Um, they're often, uh, you know, t- people are, often those organizations are asking for money, and they're not just asking for money because they're going to use that for themselves, but because they can target that money to the specific emerging needs of people who have been affected by the disaster. And those, as I say, change over time, and they're very individual. One family may need diapers, one may not need diapers, one might need uh, you know, as they return to the community, might need furniture. They may not need furniture. They may need um, things for a five-year-old as opposed to a ten-year-old. So the needs are very specific, and those unmet needs can be responded to very specifically by organizations on the ground working directly with those evacuees and those uh, disaster survivors. It's very difficult to generically say, you know, we need, I don't know, uh, a truckload of diapers because that will go out to broadly and you might end up with 20 truckloads of diapers if you know what i mean yeah. so yeah you know, yeah that's no that's what i was thinking of what you're saying that is that if everybody responds then that same organization has to step up and go okay stop sending us diapers we've got you covered exactly yeah and the other the other thing with with money and i know for many people it's not as satisfying to give money i i, I do get that but the other thing that money provides is an opportunity to contribute to and stimulate the local economy of a disaster-affected region or community to be able to um, buy goods and services in that area where the economy has been directly impacted. And then also to, as I say, target more specifically to the unmet needs of um, those people who have been directly affected. Um, And the people on the ground working with those have a better sense of what those needs are than you or I sitting remotely in in a community. You know, I mean, I'm in British Columbia. I don't know what somebody needs on the ground. I can guess, but better to have somebody who can directly ask a family, 
what can we do to help you specifically manage this very difficult time and rebuild your lives and find that out and then meet that need specifically rather than trying to guess. Right. And I mean, I guess this is kind of the best practice going forward then because we've had, what, three pretty significant disasters in five or six years here in Alberta. And it seems that the lesson from each one is is send cash before you start flooding uh, these uh, these areas with hard goods. Absolutely. And this is not only true in Alberta, it's true in Canada and really globally. Right. The uh, What we know from the research is um, people's impulse to send donations of goods, while lovely and admirable, often creates uh, huge and enormous and sometimes very costly problems for the people trying to respond to the needs of disaster-affected communities. And so um, we know this. We keep, uh, as, a, as I think, you know, disaster management organizations and, and um, not-for-profit organizations and non-governmental organizations keep saying this. And it's a challenge to, to help people understand that that is a way to help. The other way they can help is offering time, and that might be time... Um, you know, in their local community in disaster uh, preparedness and disaster organizations because um, creating and contributing to the disaster resilience of your own community and or, you know, contributing time um, to the affected residents of those northern Alberta fires um, over time can also be a wonderful way to contribute. The people Once people return to the community, the recovery process will be very long very challenging and complicated and so there may be opportunities for people to actually offer their time either locally or remotely in different ways to that so i think it's really trying to understand and work with organizations that do this work all the time to understand what what would what what's most needed and how can i best contribute from the the part of my heart that wants to contribute how best can i do that and in doing and taking that time to reflect on uh, and and find out what um kinds of contributions would be most useful really maximizing your impulse to help and contribute to the recovery of fort mcmurray and the surrounding communities that have been affected yeah well said robin uh, we'll leave it there thanks so much for making some time for us here today appreciate this Thank you for tackling a, a, a really important and uh, timely topic. Indeed. Uh, there you go, Dr. Robin Cox, professor and uh, program head of the Disaster and Emergency Management Program, Royal Roads University. Let's take a break. We'll come back. Uh, your thoughts uh, on this uh, curious phenomenon uh, in the disaster aftermath. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on Newstalk 770. All right. 974-8255. You've heard what Dr. Robin Cox has to say about well, the second disaster. Uh, the 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 bounty of useless paraphernalia that is donated in times of crisis and disaster. As one texture says, if you complain about what people give, they will stop giving. What your guest wants, as she says, is money. They've gotten enough money. Uh, it's, it's entirely true that there is such a thing as enough money when it comes to a disaster. I mean, we, we calculate the cost of a disaster, and once the dollar value is uh, equal in contribution, then we've got enough money. But I think that what Dr. Robin Cox is pointing out is that when you uh, hear about a disaster in Fort McMurray and you say, I want to give, I want to help, I want to send a truckload of Pez dispensers, you are giving. You do want to help. You have the best intentions. They literally can do nothing with those Pez dispensers, though, to help the situation. And that's what happens a lot. People give random stuff that just basically piles up 
in somebody's warehouse until it's uh, brought to a landfill, as was the case in Slave Lake. Yeah, I'm not prepared to to compliment these people and say, well, you know, they're trying. Don't be so ungrateful. Or someone else who says, hey, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. No, absolutely we should. Why, why are you sending this crap? Somebody actually donated old Christmas decorations last week. Now, who on earth put out the word that we were looking for old Christmas decorations? Nobody did. So how does somebody get that in their head that, oh, well, that, that's what I'm going to bring down. That's my contribution. No, if that's what you're thinking, then you'd be better off to not bother. So the notion that we should thank that person and then just throw it in the trash when they leave, that's the wrong way to look at it. There, there's a real need. And if you want to help, here's how you can help. If you don't want to help, that's fine. Nobody's being forced to help. Uh, so no, keep your, your junky old Christmas decorations. Nobody wants them and nobody needs them. If you've got stuff to throw out, there's a hundred different ways you can get rid of that stuff. Uh, you can go down, you know, go down to the Goodwill store because maybe maybe they want Christmas decorations. Maybe they start stocking up on Christmas decorations at this time of year so they can sell them to folks uh, later this year. Go down to the Goodwill store, the Salvation Army store, and say, hey, I got some donations. And they'll look through it, and maybe they'll say, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll take that and that, but we don't really have any need for, for those other things. And then it's back on you to get rid of it. You know, you're going to have a whole bunch of churches, by the way, that have their, uh, their bazaars or their white elephant sales or whatever you want to call them. I love your old Christmas decorations uh, for a couple of reasons. One, some people might find them uh, cute, interesting, nostalgic, or kitschy. They'd like to buy them, and then that money can go to a cause. Or two, you might have some refugees new to town here who didn't bring their Christmas decorations with them because it was an emergency when they left. So they don't have that sort of thing. I mean, there's a, there's a time and a place for all of this stuff. Um, but no, as Rob points out, like, look, you've got people making an appeal. Hey, there's a wildfire in Fort McMurray. Stuff we need is bottles of water. But moreover, we need cash because with cash, we can also buy bottles of water. And so if we want to help, I think that, this can, that we can really clear up a lot of confusion, Rob. If we just listen to what people are asking for specifically, the people who are at ground zero, who are saying things like, we need this specifically and by the way cash is king because we can convert cash into this specifically and then that alleviates us of the burden of having to be creative in terms of what we give yeah you know what and and even if you've got stuff like that uh there are websites even you know kijiji and websites like this so there are websites that are set up now specifically regarding this situation if you want to put a notice up and say, hey, you know what, everybody, I, I've got a, a dining room table that's in really good condition. I tell you what, if, if your table burned in the fire and you're now starting about uh, thinking about rebuilding your home and your need of a table, I, I've got a table. If you want it, it's free. Just give me a call and uh, we'll, we'll set it up. You can do that. If you're going to show up at one of these, these organizations and collecting donations and just dump an old dining room table on them, well, what are they going to do with it? Now they got to worry about getting rid of it. And if that was your motivation... In the first place, then then no, you're just being selfish, frankly. Uh, one more pause, then we'll come back. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge. This is News Talk 770. Roger Kincaid and Rob Breckenridge, weekdays starting at 9:30 a.m. on News Talk 770 Calgary.